Live from the First Midwest Bank Studio on State Street, this is ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Jonathan Hood. WMVP Chicago. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. How you doing? Follow us on the gram at IGJHood and at ESPN underscore Chicago. ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. What's up and welcome in to Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood right here on ESPN 1000 with open phone lines for you. 312-332-ESPN. 332-3776 is the telephone number. Hope that you've had a, a great Tuesday. Hope you have a great Tuesday night as we keep you company here until 10 o'clock. Plenty to discuss, including the Bulls and the Pistons and the last dance. Well, the last dance has really stirred up some old feelings about the Pistons and the Bulls, hasn't it? If you are new to this, I want you to think how I felt as a young Bulls fan watching Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen and Horace Grant get trashed by the Pistons. And I don't mean trashed as we do verbally on social media. I'm talking about being trashed on the court, physicality. The feelings from back in the day are still simmering. It's still there. I'll just tell you what I noticed when I was a young Bulls fan watching this. Watching Isaiah Thomas and Bill Lambeer and Rick Mahorn and Buddha Edwards and Dennis Rodman and John Sally, it was just amazing to watch this mountain that the Bulls could not overcome. And I know that today in 2020, you want it instantly, right? You think Jordan back then should have just been able to just get right past the Pistons, but you could see how difficult it was for the Bulls and Jordan to get past a team that didn't want Jordan to fly. It was well laid out by the Pistons coaching staff that they had Jordan rules to make sure Jordan was in, wasn't in flight because when Jordan was in flight, you know, he's going to dunk the basketball. He's going to get to the rim, all that. Right. And so what we saw every time we saw the Pistons versus the Bulls is finesse and technique versus toughness and strength. The finesse and technique came from the Bulls. The toughness and the strength came from the Pistons. The New York Knicks would do this in years gone by when they were good the same way under Pat Riley. They wanted to make sure they implemented the strength and made sure that it was very difficult for you to get to the basket, to run you off the three-point line and to be able to say, if you're going to come in here, you're going to get nailed. It's not what you get today, but back then, that was a way of life in the NBA. And I think about those names I mentioned from the Pistons, like Isaiah and Bill Lambeer and Rick Mahorn. This is what they were trying to do, not just to the Bulls, but to teams that were good like the Celtics and other teams, the Sixers during that era. They were trying to make sure that they would maim the opponent, where it wasn't comfortable for them to go to the basket. Remember, we're talking about a different time in basketball where the three-point shot was something where you need to have a specialist to shoot it. Everybody in the team shoots it now, but back then you needed to have a specialist, one or two guys to be able to shoot that per roster. And now I see Isaiah Thomas. Since we we saw on Saturday and Sunday um, and people talking about the last dance and then watching Sunday, now Isaiah Thomas is on an apology tour, an explanation tour. Why apologize? Now, here's the thing. 
I've always respected Isaiah Thomas's game because Isaiah Thomas was a guy also that went to the basket a lot. Saw him in college at Indiana, watching him in the pros, and he took a beating also. There's stitches that are still on his over his eyebrow from stitches that he's received. He's been busted open plenty of times trying to get to the basket. He's one of the best guards that we've ever seen in the game. If I would I be looking at the numbers, I want to say that he averaged somewhere between 18 and 19 points a game toward the end of his career. He was a spectacular guard. He was very, very good. He gets lost in the sauce, though, because of the two championships and others getting credit and other players were able to surpass him from a number standpoint. But Isaiah was very solid. But I go back to why Isaiah Thomas has to have an apology tour. Why? Why go through the excuses now? You know, this documentary for new fans makes Thomas and the Pistons look like a-holes. It's probably because they were. (laughs) And they didn't mind it. You see, I've always thought like this, right? I don't mind a team wearing the black hat. I think that's healthy for sports. If you lean into the heel tendencies, if you're going to be a bad guy, cool, cool. If you're a team, everyone boos, fine. We don't get enough of that in sports. I think it's a healthy balance for us as sports fans to look at a team. just like the Pistons. They didn't mind being the bad boys because guess what? They were called the bad boys. That was their moniker. That's who they were. But the other thing is, is that the Pistons were very talented. They were talented enough to be able to do what we normally see in basketball. And that's, I don't know, shoot the basketball, play good defense. They can do a lot of different things. They weren't just a thug team. But when they had to pull that card out, they pulled it out on a regular basis. As we talk about the last dance with Jonathan Hood on Under the Hood on ESPN 1000. But the Pistons wanted to hurt. They wanted to injure. They wanted to slow down. They wanted to muck up the game physically. And had that mental edge. In that documentary, amongst the things that stands out to me about that section of the documentary, is talking about the mental edge. How Jordan knew when he went to the basket that Sally or Lambeer or Buddha Edwards or some of the bigs, including Dennis Rodman, was in there. And they were going to try to knock Jordan down to make sure that he was uncomfortable. Earn it on the foul line, boy. You're going to earn it? Earn it on the foul line. Or try to get around us and score. And that's kind of where it was. You think about that that era of basketball where you were quite the man to be able to go inside and to be able to go through the tall trees in an era, by the way, also that had so many bigs. You had to have a big center back then, not only to be able to dominate offensively, but to be able to block shots and do a lot of different things. And Jordan with the testicular fortitude went to the basket time and time again And again, the mental edge the Pistons had until the Bulls came together in that offseason, the last time they lost to the Pistons. And something that you don't see today, where you saw um, a bunch of players on this Bulls team, I think the entire team, as the documentary would, uh, would talk about, they all came together. As soon as they lost that same offseason in May, June, and they, you know what? All throughout the offseason, they went through it and they worked out to try to get stronger and bigger so they can take the punishment and take it to the Pistons. But I really enjoyed that part of the documentary because it tells a story of the journey, which we're going to talk about a lot here on the show, the journey of Jordan and the Bulls. So I just find it interesting 
I see Isaiah Thomas on all these different shows, uh, radio and television, over the last 48 hours trying to explain, trying to piston-splain what is going on with this team. Because, again, to a lot of new viewers, non-sports fans and sports fans, millennials that did not live this, like me as a Gen Xer, there's so many that didn't live this. And I understand everything they went through this. And it's it's new to a lot of different people. But I go back to what Michael Jordan said in the documentaries. You go back to The Last Dance. Remember Isaiah Thomas on that documentary and over the last 48 hours he's explaining that, hey, you know what, I, I, I should have shook hands. We didn't shake hands. Michael Jordan says he's not buying into Isaiah's explanation for not shaking hands. This is Isaiah talking about the walk-off. Well, I know it's all Whatever he says now, you know it wasn't his true actions then. You know, it's time enough to think about it. Or the reaction of the public that's kind of changed his perspective of it. You can show me anything you want. There's no way you can convince me he was Knowing what we know now, in the aftermath of what took place but during that period of time that's just not how it was passed just just wasn't and you can go back and you can look at any of those old games or whatever when you lost you left the floor all you got to do is you go back to us losing in game seven i shook everybody in two years in a row we shook their hands when they beat us there was a certain respect to the game that we paid to them. That's sportsmanship. No matter how much it hurts. And believe me, it hurt. But they didn't have to shake our hands. We knew we whipped their ass already. We gotten past them. And that was the most that's that to me that was better than, you know, in some ways winning a championship. Thoughts there from Michael Jordan on the last dance. And then Isaiah Thomas on what Waddle and Sylvie earlier today. And, you know, again, Isaiah has said this on several platforms now about not shaking hands after going through the process. The Bulls finally getting over the mountaintop, finally getting to the Pistons. And the handshake, the reason why this is a storyline is because it was the Bulls wanted the Pistons respect. That's what it all comes down to. It, it, you know, again, we can get into sportsmanship. This is a topic that we've had on the show over the years in the high school level or the college level, the sportsmanship thing. But we have seen handshakes before uh, throughout sports. But I think the Bulls wanted the Pistons' respect because the Bulls had to be in that handshake line for the Pistons in years past. And so instead of ducking out with 10 seconds left, the Bulls thought that that was a, a slight against them. Because they all both teams worked hard, but the Bulls finally get past the Pistons and they didn't shake hands. And you could see Isaiah Thomas sneaking out with the Lamb Beer and others, like, no, we're not going to give them any respect. And I think that that's what the Bulls wanted. They wanted to have the Pistons respect, saying, "Hey, we finally beat you." And I think the Pistons, even at that particular time, thinking about it back then and thinking about it now, the Pistons knew that the the era was over. Because if Jordan beat you, it was hard to come back on Jordan again, thinking that you could be able to get past Jordan now. And so I think that from the Pistons standpoint, their two championships was great, but they knew once Jordan beat them, was beating them, uh, that it was going to be over. And so Isaiah Thomas on Woodwell and Sylvie, and the question was posed, 
are you truly sorry for not shaking hands uh, with the Bulls? I think all of us, looking looking back on it, you know, 30 years ago, you know, uh, the way the way things happened at that moment in time, I think if we all had a chance to do it all over again, I know myself and, and I can speak for, for several of my teammates, I think we all would have handled it differently. Uh, the emotion of that time, and, and let me let me contextualize this for you and put you back in the, in the time period uh, where we have, you know, we have been champions and, and we were down in that series 3-0. And Jordan, um, right before game four, he he had a press conference and he said that we were undeserving as champions. We were bad for basketball. And and not only did he, you know, insult us um, personally, but he also, you know, the city of Detroit, you know, felt that also. And... So what went into that decision and our emotions at that time was not only was we losing and, and getting our butt kicked, but at the same time, uh, that type of personal insult uh, to our team and knowing the journey that we had just gone through uh, to win a championship and understanding the journey that the Bulls were making uh, to win a championship, uh, you know, we we felt at that time that that, that type of insult, uh, not only to us, but also the city of Detroit, was truly uncalled for. Thoughts from Isaiah Thomas. Well, I want to get your reaction to Isaiah Thomas's uh, thoughts about no handshake, the lack of sportsmanship, or just what you noticed that you didn't know about the Last Dance documentary. Let's get your calls in here. Sean, open the phone lines at 312-332-ESPN, 332-3776. as our telephone number. We'll take your phone calls coming up next. Also, there is a bigger message about the journey for Jordan and the Bulls that needs to be brought out. I'll be the first to do it. I'll be glad to do it right here on UTH. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Hi, everybody. On ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. This is Under the Hood. Under the Hood podcasts are available now on the all-new ESPN Chicago app. Available on your device now. This is ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. This last dance has been really interesting, this documentary, because not only because it's Michael Jordan, but there's this film that we haven't seen before, and there's some details that we haven't heard before, uh, at least on the record, which I find interesting. It's a lot of old stories that I've heard um, off the record, but some are coming on the record in this documentary, which I find interesting. Uh, glad to have you in tonight as we talk to you about the the Last Dance documentary. If you have not watched it, man, binge watch that thing. It's, it's interesting. If you're a Chicago sports fan, it doesn't matter if basketball is not your not your bag. It's still very interesting. Uh, something else that stands out to me, we were talking earlier about Isaiah Thomas and and the Bulls and the Pistons and that whole um, battle that they had. I just want to point something out about three things in particular uh, from the last documentary that we saw, the last episode of the documentary. 
So there are three factors in the Bulls' success, amongst the three factors in the Bulls' success. One of them, obviously, is Michael Jordan, his will, right? The will of Michael Jordan and how he was able to pull this team over the finish line six times in eight years. He was a leader, as is well documented on this show that we're watching. But it was MJ and his teammates, because it wasn't MJ by himself. It was his teammates that helped Jordan be able to uh, get those six titles in eight years. Phil Jackson, as we saw uh, in this documentary, was a huge factor. There are many that believe that anybody could just coach the Bulls and just sit on the sidelines and watch Michael be able to put up 50 a night and see the Bulls win 6,008 years. That was not the case. If that was the case, Doug Collins would have been able to do that. Uh, Doug didn't do that. You know, uh, If that was the case, then Stan Albeck could have did that. Or, or some of these other coaches before Phil Jackson could have been able to do that. But there is a reason why Phil was put in place. And so Phil Jackson, because of his um, relationship with players, being able to sit down and talk to players, communicate with players, I think that was one of the things that got him on the same page. And, of course, the staff that Phil Jackson had, an offensive coordinator, a defensive coordinator, to make sure that the players were on the right track. I mean, that, that's really, really huge. So I look at that, and the number one thing, that really stands out to me about the journey for the Bulls and Michael Jordan in particular is trust. It's trust. If you've heard me when we had basketball talk about the Bulls, I would be the first to tell you that I always thought that Zach Levine and the Bulls did not trust one another. I always said that this roster will really look good individually on other teams, but they don't trust one another. The teams that underachieve are the ones that don't trust one another. You can give me five talented basketball players and put them on the floor and say, you know what? I got five guys that can score 20 points a game, and I got a couple of guys that can defend. But it doesn't matter what the numbers are, because this is not fantasy basketball. If there is no trust on the floor, you get what you get, and that usually is underachievement. Michael Jordan was uh, was great even before you start seeing Bill Cartwright come in there, but you could see the greatness before Scottie Pippen was drafted, but you start to see the Bulls get better because of trust. It was Michael Jordan having to trust Pippen and Grant and Cartwright and being able to trust John Paxson in big spots and Steve Kerr in big spots and some of the other bench mob guys later on with Ron Harper and others. Trust is huge because... If Michael Jordan didn't feel comfortable passing the basketball and scoring 50 points a night, the Bulls wouldn't have won six titles in eight years. You can tell me how great he was, but also you have to be able to give Michael Jordan credit for being able to have trust. And that is also being able to trust Jerry Krause, someone he did not like. Krause brought in these players, and it was up to Jordan and the coaching staff to make sure that these players were ready to play, that they were on a different level. Uh, and have a different standard than what they had in college or other places that they played. And so trust is huge. So when you've heard me in the past talk about this Bulls team with Boylan, I say, yeah, they just don't look like they trust each other. I'm just not saying that just to throw out a sports phrase. I'm saying that because you could see it on the floor. If Zach Levine feels like he's got to score 50 points and he's you know dissing the bench and he's not passing the basketball and trying to make others better, then it, you could see that it's a young team that doesn't trust one another. And so that's what I saw with this Bulls team, trust. I'll also say this, that if nothing else, if I don't watch another episode of The Last Dance, 
I will come away with something that is not talked about enough. And that is it's hard to win a championship. It's hard to win a championship. It doesn't matter how talented you are. It is so difficult to be at the top of your game and finally climb up to win that championship for your team or individually. And this is a great example for these hot takers and these people that get on television and radio every day telling you how bad players are, even though they're flourishing on their teams, but don't have a championship. So, so they suck. I don't, they haven't won a championship. So they're bad. They don't have won a championship because they'll never win a championship because that's my hot take. That's my tweet. That's my Facebook message. That's my IG. I got to just tell everybody, tell the world and tell all my followers that this guy sucks. This woman sucks. She can't win a championship. So this means that Chris Paul and Russell Westbrook and Paul George and James Harden and Carmelo Anthony and Vince Carter and AI and Malone and Stockton and, and Elgin Baylor, all these players, including Charles Barkley, all those guys were bad or all those guys under cheat because they didn't win a championship. You know how hard it is to win a championship? Look how long it took Michael to win a championship. You believe if you believe he's the greatest of all time, remember he had to start from humble beginnings when thinking that he needed to score sixty three a night against the Celtics to be able to win a championship until he's able to trust, until he had the right teammates and the right coaching staff, it wasn't gonna happen. So if nothing else this documentary, if I don't watch another episode, which I will this weekend, but just pointing it out, that it is hard to win a championship. And this also circles back to LeBron James. And again, the hot take shows. And again, this is uh, this will never be a hot take show. I've never been a hot take host. Uh, I'm just like you at the bar. The only difference is I don't have a beer in my hand doing this show. So um, it's just conversation that we've had here for years on this program. And for some, it's not hot enough, and I couldn't care less. I do it. I do this show in my style, so I don't. I really couldn't care less. My point is, is that when you and I are having a, a conversation, it's a. It might be not be a hot take. It might be not be a hot take, but it might be a mild take. <laughs> I'll be glad to give you some mild takes and just give you some thoughts on how I see things. But we're never going to get. You're not yelling and screaming. I don't know, maybe early in my career, but not now because it's about perspective, and it's about looking at players that didn't win a championship and that they're trying, striving to try to win a championship and and how hard it is to get there. Uh, And this circles back to LeBron James, right? So LeBron James is not well liked enough in this city because he's not in the Bulls uniform. If he was, he'd be beloved. But LeBron James is polarizing because of social media because of choices that he makes in free agency where the operative word is free. LeBron James is one of the greatest basketball players I've ever seen. This is not about LeBron versus Magic or LeBron versus Michael or LeBron versus the all-time greats. It's being able to understand that even for LeBron James, similar to Michael, that it was not just going to be automatic. He steps on the floor, boom, championship, because he's 6'8", 275, so he's going to win a championship, right? Yeah, he went through it. With the Cleveland Cavaliers. He went through it in a big way. Just like, oh man, he's going through these teams. These teams are underachieving. LeBron's scoring 20, 30 points a game. He's trying to defer to make others better. And yet he is raked over the coals for trying to make the team better by throwing a pass out with time running down. Oh, he's not a winner. See, this is why I enjoyed the Jordan years and enjoyed watching the Jordan years without 
the speculation and the hot takes of what a person is not. That's why I enjoyed that so much. So now I look back at this and I see what what people are saying on social media now. And I'm like, and I just thank God, like, thank God that there was no Twitter. There was no Instagram. There's no Facebook for people to just rake Jordan over the clothes because he fell short against the Pistons because he fell short against the Cleveland Cavaliers. It's hard to win a championship. And just like LeBron James, like, oh, why is LeBron James? Why does he take the last shot? He, he doesn't have the clutch gene. You know what? Jordan also passed the basketball to try to make others better because that's what a team does. LeBron realized that, but for the morons out there that just want to be able to hate just to hate, LeBron James is a bad teammate because he should he's the best player on the, on the team. Take the last shot all the time. He did. He failed at times, probably more times than not taking that last shot. But he also passed the ball to him trying to make others better. You know why? Because he learned from Magic and Michael. And didn't care about the outside noise from morons that believe that you, well, he's got to take the last shot all the time. Jordan didn't take the last shot all the time. We've already seen this documentary where John Paxson won several uh, games for the Bulls and helped them win a championship because it was the right basketball play. You see, the right basketball play used to be written about in magazines and periodicals when I was coming up. And now you make that pass and now you're a coward. Now you don't want to be the best anymore, even though Kobe did it, Michael did it, and so many great others that played the game. It's interesting how that works, huh? It's interesting. 312-332-ESPN, 332-3776 is our telephone number. Um, coming up, the Bulls make uh, some moves in their front office, and so the Blackhawks will address that as we move forward right here on UTH. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. It's Under the Hood. Follow us on the gram at IGJHood and at ESPN underscore Chicago. This is Chicago's home for sports, ESPN 1000. Howard Griffith from the Big Ten Network will talk to us about the Bears and the NFL Draft. And also, if you're a Big Ten fan, stay by your listening device at 8, 8 o'clock because Howard will review with me some of the quality Big Ten players that were drafted early. So we'll address that for you, the Big Ten fan, coming up at 8 o'clock right here on ESPN 1000. In 90 minutes, we will have Jared Payton, friend of the program, the son of Walter Payton from WGN Channel 9. His thoughts about the Bears and the NFL draft as well, right here on Under the Hood. Um, so the Bulls' front office is changing, as you and I both know, right? This is this is um, better with Mark Eversley than Brian Colangelo, with the two and three different Instagrams bashing his own Sixers organization, um, and that's why he's fired looking for a job, or Wes Wilcox and Danny Ferry with uh, with racial overtones that were very unsavory for the organizations that they were working for. Mark Eversley uh, was hired not just because he's African-Canadian. He was hired because he was qualified, and it feels fresh for Eversley to be in this position as a new GM. Now with Karnaschovas and no guard packs and no old guard, no bad cologne wafting through the advocate center with the scent of bad drafts and sea uh, level free agents. Now things can change and hopefully for the better. When I talk to people away from our city, 
about the Bulls because it's one thing for me to put Joe Cowley on and Joe's is right there in the middle of it, you know, does a great job breaking it down or talk to bloggers or broadcasters around the team. But I always like to get the perspective outside uh, of our city on certain things that the Bulls do or all of our Chicago teams. I just love that perspective because that thousand foot view of our teams is what I relish because I can rail on the Bulls for three hours about what they have done here and how they're going backwards as an organization. But sometimes I always like to get the perspective of others. And my thought is, is that when it comes to Mark Eversley and getting this job as the GM of the Bulls, I, I just think that there's several things that's got to be on his mind as he takes this job. He has to know the reputation of the Bulls as he takes this job. And the reputation of the Bulls is not very good and has not been good under Gar and Pax. And now Pax will, will text and he will backpedal and he will say that everything is good. Why, why should I be saying that? All that. But see, the thing is, is that the truth is the truth. And it has to be told that if for you, the Bulls fan, you have not been able to get what you want. And that is a team that's contending. Every team in the league can't contend, but there are 16 slots, eight in the East and the Bulls and the LeBronless East should be able to be one of the, the top eight teams. And they're not. And so with Eversley in the mix, I will tell you this, that. Eversley and Karnaschovas have to be able to establish rapport with agents. And not from when Arturis was with Denver and Eversley was with um, with the Philadelphia 76ers. I mean, like, he's got to, res- uh, they have to establish rapport with agents to be able to let them know that there are two new sheriffs in town. As a sheriff and the deputy sheriff, but whatever it is, that there is, uh, there are new faces around the organization. And it's not the late Jerry Krause and it's not Jerry Reinsdorf as much. It's just those two, along with Michael Reinsdorf, to be able to put this thing together and put a new coat of paint on this organization. And you have to be able to clear the reputation of the Bulls around the league. It's almost like having a new marketing person in place to be able to say, you know what? I don't care what you saw in that last dance documentary. I don't care what you saw in the past. This is a new day. And we want to be able to be open for business and tell you, hey, this is the Chicago Bulls, the new look Chicago Bulls. And we're trying to get in a position where free agents want to come here. Because that has been the lament for a long time. You and I have talked about this for a long time. Like, when are the Bulls be able to get themselves a top-notch free agent? If the Blackhawks can, if the Cubs can, if the White Sox can, uh, if the Bears can, then why can't the Chicago Bulls? And that's because of the front office. If you have something that you don't want to, uh, if someone's there and they're saying, wait, I don't like what you're selling. I'm not coming. I'd rather go to Texas or Florida or California or Indianapolis or wherever. Then that means that you're not in a position where you can sell something that a free agent would want to buy. As we talk about this with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, the brand new ESPN Chicago app. I I think that it is important for Eversley and it's important for Connor Chauvis to be able to clear the reputation in the league and say, this is who we are now. And I know that Jim Boylan's still in place. I still get those messages from time to time. It's like, okay, there's new brass. When are they going to get rid of Boylan? That will happen sooner than later. 
they're all they're evaluating everything i'm sure as they are both new into the job they know what to do they they have to see what we see because the reputation of the bulls especially how they played even though the defensive numbers were better it just it just you just know that new leadership would be needed immediately for this bulls team i talked to paul jones a color analyst for the toronto raptors and the reason why i called paul is a friend and I, I reached out to him because I wanted to get his perspective on Mark Eversley. Now, Eversley uh, was with the Toronto Raptors. He was with Nike for a decade. Let's start there. And then he was um, with the Toronto Raptors uh, in the front office of the 76ers and now with the opportunity to be the general manager for the Chicago Bulls. So I asked Paul a number of questions, including um, Eversley getting his opportunity at the big time. I go back even further than that to Mark Eversley being um, a very, very good uh, high school player and then small college player. Um, uh, he went to high school uh, just west of the city, uh, to downtown, and was always a basketball guy. His his time, he then went on to work at Nike and was instrumental in a lot of things going on there uh, before he, he kind of, you know, jumped into the front office world. And he was here with Brian Colangelo, so... Uh, it was at a time when the Raptors were undergoing um, a bit of a resurgence. Uh, Brian Colangelo came in in his first year. They got the number one pick. Uh, Sam Mitchell was coach of the year. They made the playoffs for the first time in five, six years. Um, and things took off. And, uh, you know, while Brian Colangelo spearheading a lot of that, Mark Eversley and Masai Ujiri uh, were a big part of that team. So, um Mark was, uh, he was, he was, as I said, instrumental in helping turn things around here in Toronto. And then, you know, as you do, you move around to get experience. He goes to Washington. He goes to Philadelphia again with Brian Colangelo before, um, you know, they made the change in, in the front office there. So he, he's been around. I'm, I'm really, it's really great to see a Toronto kid, um, uh, and, and, and a minority for, let's be frank, to work his way up and pay his dues and, and get his shot at, at the big time. So some thoughts there from Paul Jones on Mark Eversley. All I would say is this, is that um, Eversley and Cardinal Shelves have an opportunity with a clean slate to be able to put their stamp on the organization. Hopefully um, it's a positive in the next few years. I don't expect... I don't expect miracles from the beginning because the stench of the Garpax era is still there. Um, so I so I just got to find out uh, you know what their plan is, their style of play, everything else. Um, as we talk about this here on ESPN 1000, the brand new ESPN Chicago app. So let's go from the Bulls to the Blackhawks, the other tenant at the United Center. And so the question about John McDonough is why does this happen now, right? Why is John McDonough being let go right now? And John McDonough, who I've known when he was with the Chicago Cubs, and it was kind of surprising that the Blackhawks um, were able to choose John McDonough as president of hockey operations or at the, the top job with the Hawks. But I understood why McDonough was hired by the Blackhawks. The reason why he was hired by the Blackhawks is because he's a marketing maven. Uh, he is great at the lunch and dinner table, great with advertisers, ideas, marketing, uh, and so he's that modern Mad Men character, that show Mad Men that lasted for a long time. Uh, McDonough's that guy when it comes to marketing and ideas and trying to put um, information and in, um, in thoughts about the team that he's promoting. He did that for the Cubs for a long time, did that for the Blackhawks for a long time. 
Uh, yes, it was the great hockey that was on the ice that was entertaining. There's no doubt about that. But also, it was about awareness. You can have the greatest hockey team on the West Side, but if no one knows about it, <laughs> then, uh, then you know, what good is it, right? And I thought that McDonough did a really good job of marketing, where in which you watch, walk down Michigan Avenue and there's a, you know, Blackhawks sweaters that were available that you could buy. Uh, and just having the atmosphere around the United Center, you know, all the bars and everything else. I mean, I'm not saying that McDonough was able to uh, build all those bars, but just awareness and having fun and tailgating before the games and then having that, it was a place to be. The winning's part of it, but also awareness is part of it as well. Uh, and all of a sudden, there were Chicagoans wearing, you know, Blackhawk sweaters that were around, right? So... After the three championships that the Blackhawks won in the Quinville era, I never thought that Quinville should have been let go. But I understand that sometimes that there's a fatigue, right? We know this with the Joe Madden and, and Lovey Smith and all these other examples of when there's fatigue. And they let Joe Quinville go, the best uh, coach in the city, for a decade plus because of the three Stanley Cup championships. Doesn't matter if you like hockey or not, you appreciate the championships and Quinville was a big part of it. And so Jeremy Calden becomes the head coach, and you know whoever was in that position after Quinville was let go. With Calden in that spot, you're just going, oh, God. You know that he's going to step into a mud hole, right? You just know that it, <laughs> a young coach like that after Quinville had such a, a had cast a, a big shadow as a head coach for the Blackhawks, here's Calden, right? And that just doesn't work. I don't think that Calden's going to be around for the long haul. But I like the whole thing of McDonough being there. You getting the Bowmans in there. Rocky Wirtz was a hero, especially after Bill Wirtz passed away, and things changed. But here's the thing that has to be said: is that McDonough made a statement. He says he's uh, he's going to support the organization, even though he's not going to be there. But I have to look at McDonough like I look at Ryan Pace or Theo Epstein or. Uh, all the other organizations around the city, as far as their front office, I can look at the the White Sox the same way. If you underachieve for a long period of time, that there might be change. There might be time for fatigue. Might be time for change because of fatigue. So five years and not even getting close to the Stanley Cup, it was time for new blood. And so I totally get it. McDonough had been there for the championship years, and you know that there was a tug of war with egos. In the Hawks organization, like who should get the credit? Quinville should it be Stan Bowman, the players, and all this? And and to me, it reminds me of the Bulls that we just talked about in their championship years. Like who should get the credit? Well, I mean, everybody should get the credit when you win a championship. But everyone has their run, and the Blackhawks had their run with Joel Quinville, and so Quinville let go. Carlton's in, and now McDonough let go. I thought it was a COVID nineteen situation where they was trying to furlough or or, or cut some salary there, but clearly there was a disconnect where the Blackhawks thought, okay, we're going to move in a different direction, and they are. And so I don't know what Blackhawks 2.0 looks like, especially with Kane and Tave still on the ice and still playing for this team and still the, the draw for the Blackhawks, but there's a reason why McDonough is not no longer here. Let's hear from Pat Boyle now. Pat Boyle was on yesterday, um, and he really just lays out how – his thoughts on John McDonough no longer being part of the Blackhawks organization. Well, it, it's surprising because of the timing of it. You know, one week into the pause, we uh, we heard from Rocky Wirtz, and 
he didn't mix words at all. He basically gave Stan Bowman and John McDonough uh, encouragement that they were going to keep their jobs, that no no changes would be made in the front office. And he, he said it you know, very positively and glowingly and kind of went and didn't step back and say, you know what, during this time of a, a pandemic crisis, you know, we're focused on health and, and we'll reevaluate down the road. He went out and says, no. We like the direction. We like this. Things are even though, uh, you know, they hadn't made the playoffs the last two years and we're approaching a third straight. They still like the direction that the team was going. Well, what has changed here over the last six weeks um, in the statement that was released today? I think there's something in it that is is something that maybe we can look to as a possible reason. And it said that, you know, during the COVID-19 crisis and the league suspension, it gave the team an opportunity to reassess their future and to set a renewed positive direction. So maybe there was some disconnect there. Now, I know Danny Wirtz has been taking on a bigger role with this franchise over the last few years, um, and he is going to be the interim president. He is going to lead the search along with his dad, Rocky, and they will come to a decision on, on who the, the next voice will be to lead this team as a president. But, you know, that's the only thing I could think of that is possibly uh, that maybe as they reassessed under these uncertain times. I mean, sports is going to be very different on the other side. One of the, the few problems the Blackhawks had was attendance. Well, attendance is going to be different uh, when we return to sports. So maybe there was some sort of disconnect with the look and the take and the uh, – the approach they were going to make, and maybe that was the reason or the catalyst for the change. But, you know, certainly John deserves a lot of credit for what he's done over the last 13 years. We, we cited often, but I think it was a 2006 ESPN.com story that listed the Chicago Blackhawks as the worst franchise, not in the NHL, but in all of professional sports, and in short order, uh, they became the gold standard of the NHL. So that is Pat Boyle's initial reaction to uh, John McDonough being let go on Wall and Silva yesterday. Uh, Pat Boyle, host of the Hockey Show here on ESPN 1000 and part of NBC Sports Chicago. Coming up next, do you know the name of Justin Werwasser? Do you know who that is? I'll tell you who that is next on UTH. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Waddle and Sylvie. No matter what Michael said, if you were one of the faces of the NBA, you were Isaiah frickin' Thomas, who was this little guy who represented a lot of great kids growing up in Detroit. And when you are looked upon as a great figure in the NBA, and you can't go back to the basic fundamental of just sportsmanship and saying, look, good battle, congratulations. I think that sucks. And, and you know what? I am going to 100% agree with you. And what I've said is during that moment in time, that lapse of emotion that we had, yeah, we could have handled that situation better, and we didn't. Did you miss something? I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm, I'm saying you're right. Check out the podcast on the ESPN Chicago app. Waddle and Sylvie. Weekdays 2 to 6 on ESPN 1000. You're listening to Under the Hood. 
Get the ESPN Chicago app for podcasts and the live stream from anywhere, anywhere, anywhere. Download in the app store today. This is ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Howard Griffith from the Big Ten Network will be with me in our next segment as we review the Big Ten players taken in the NFL draft. Also, his thoughts about the Bears and what they've done. So we'll get to that coming up in our next segment right here on Under the Hood on ESPN 1000. Do you know who Justin Warwasser is? R-O-H-R Wasser. Do you know who that is? That's the New England Patriots rookie kicker who has a tattoo on his left arm uh, that has the markings of the three percenters. The Three Percenters is a right-wing militia group that first formed in 2008. And he says he plans on having it covered up. That's from Mike Reese from uh, ESPN.com. I would direct everyone to go to theundefeated.com and look for Bomani Jones' piece about Justin Rowasser because um, Rowasser says, I got that tattoo when I was a teenager and I have a lot of family in the military. I thought it stood for a military support symbol at the time. He said in the uh, press conference, he says, obviously, it evolved into something that I don't want to represent. When I look back on it, I should have done way more research before I put a mark or symbol like that on my body. So the several question that comes to mind here. And again, I I have no problem with left wing, right wing, centrist. I, I couldn't care less about, you know, how you look at politics and how you look at the world, because. We're all Americans. I I have friends on on either side of the aisle that always have their strong opinions one way or the other, but it doesn't affect our relationship. It doesn't affect my relationship with you. But the whole point is, is that when we start talking about hate groups where you uh, don't like someone based on the color of their skin or their religion, uh, that's when you and I will have a problem because that's not how I roll personally. And there's people that are probably like that that I deal with on a daily basis that I probably don't even know because they won't show themselves. And they definitely won't put uh, ink on their arms to show that they feel this way about a certain race or a certain person or the way they look or their religion. The three percenters, he says, I got the tattoo when I was a teenager. Okay. Here's the thing. A couple of things. Are the New England Patriots, were they aware of uh, Rowasser and his allegiance to the three percenters? Were they aware of it? And are they okay with it? Also, from the, the college that he went to, was the college okay with it, knowing that he had that 3 percenter tattoo on, on himself, on his left arm? Because to me, when we talk about how uh, the tattoo doesn't represent a militia group for him, that he's going to have it removed. Like So he said he was a kid. He's 23 now. So when he was a kid, when he had this, when he was a teenager, like 16, 17, 18 years of age, now you can't measure a man and woman's heart. I get that. But when you look at a tattoo, when you clearly want to be able to be aligned with that, if you put the ink on, if you want to be able to represent um, how you feel, you're going to put many people use a tattoo to say, this is who I am. Three percenter. Yes. And down with the Obama administration. That was set up. Of course, that's what it was set up for in 2008. Um, I just think it's interesting that Marshall didn't say anything about it while he was in college. And the New England Patriots, when you are trying to go through with the fine tooth comb, all the people 
that you want to have in your organization and you do a check and see if he's the right player, if it's the right temperament, is the right person that you want to have in your team. You know, of all the teams, the Patriots are supposed to be that team that always is able to go through and make sure that all their players are exactly who they are. You know, trying try to figure out, okay, is this a guy that's uh, befitting of a Patriot? Should this person be in this organization? So they didn't see the tattoo or are they okay with the tattoo? With more, here's Mina Kimes, who's on the Dan Levitard show, talking about this. I've had to learn a lot about the group. I think a lot of people have, right, uh, over the last few days. And as I always say, whenever we have stories like this about you know stuff in the past or allegations or red flags, I think it's really useful to be specific. So the three percenters, which are the group in question, the tattoo is uh, their logo. The Southern Poverty Law Center defines them as an anti-government. They were formed in 2008 after Barack Obama was elected. They claim to not be an anti-government group, but if you read the themes, they're pretty clear. There's like a bit of looseness as to the organization itself. They have branches that have done things like uh, protecting the white supremacists at Charlottesville, uh, protesting refugee resettlement, but that was, and some of these things have been denied by the national group, so it can be kind of hard to pin down, I guess, clear messaging. So what we've got is this guy, this kicker, who says... Well, this was a mistake when I was a teen. Now, it's a very specific tattoo, and it's not like a tweet, right? Because it's something he's had on his body. So I think what I'd want to know is, okay, when did you figure out then what this actually means? But more importantly, when he comes out and says, this doesn't represent what I believe, I think it would be really useful to have him say, well, here's what it represents, and here's why I don't agree with this. And we never do that when we have these stories. And I think it's so useful to have people actually say the words and explain what this is for, because otherwise it just gets slided over as controversial and red flags when we can talk about what it means and without necessarily indicting him completely. Should the Patriots have done? I think based on what we usually hear about the research they do, I would be pretty shocked if they didn't. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Hi, everybody. On ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports.